You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. What up, everybody? Welcome to this very special episode of Pop Culture Mass. We're doing the movie mass thing today. I am going to be doing this episode as a bonus special episode. We're going to be talking about Wolf of Wall Street, but specifically the ethics and philosophy within Wolf of Wall Street. So I'm doing this as a uh, bonus content for a philosophy class that I'm taking over the summer. And I wanted to do it as a podcast material so I could release it to my RSS and give everybody something to listen to because I'm going to be talking about a movie. I'm going to be talking about Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street 2013. I can't believe that it's been that long already since the film came out. It feels like something very, very new to me. It's, it's in my opinion, Martin Scorsese's most recent great masterwork, along with Goodfellas, possibly Raging Bull. This is in his top three easily. It's hands down better than a lot of his recent work, which is good. I mean, Martin Scorsese doesn't do bad work. He he does good work, but he does good to great work. And this is some of his great work along with Goodfellas before it. I really think that, you know, Scorsese, he won the Academy Award for The Departed. And I know some of you guys are going to come at me and say, well, he won the Academy Award for The Departed. So how can you say that Wolf of Wall Street is that much better than The Departed? It is. Wolf of Wall Street is is way better than The Departed. It's way better than Shutter Island. It's it's much better than Gangs of New York. Although I, I feel like at times in this film, particularly when he's talking to his um his employees, when he's giving these those speeches to his employees, uh, I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio does channel a little bit of of uh, Daniel Day Lewis's own kind of guttural delivery of some of his lines from Gangs of New York. That's a film, of course, directed by Scorsese that DiCaprio and um, Daniel Day Lewis were in together. And I feel like uh, DiCaprio kind of took notes from that film, and then when he comes around to Wolf of Wall Street, I think his some of his performance, the way he utters those lines is a lot like the way Daniel Day-Lewis's character in in uh, Gangs of New York would deliver some of his lines with that kind of guttural, kind of real uh, raspy, kind of grimy, deep, throaty kind of delivery. Regardless, this is a better film than all of those other films. This is a better film than anything Scorsese has done since Goodfellas. And that's not a knock on Scorsese. Uh, but it is to say that Wolf of Wall Street is head and shoulders above the other stuff that that Scorsese has done for a couple of decades. And some of you, as I said a moment ago, are going to come after me. Y'all are going to at me or DM me or whatever and say, well, that's bullshit because he won the Academy Award for Best Director for The Departed. And I'm going to say the Academy only gave him the director, the Best uh, Best Director Academy Award for that film because they didn't want to miss the chance. I mean, Scorsese's getting older. That's a fact of life. It's unfortunate, but hey, we all get older. We all eventually croak. And I think the Academy was looking around and thinking, holy fuck, it's like 2005 or whatever, and we haven't given this guy Best Director yet. And they uh, they fumbled on some 
earlier opportunities to give him best director. He should have won best director for Goodfellas. There's no reason why Kevin Costner should have beat Martin Scorsese with Dances with Wolves. I mean, Martin Scorsese should have taken it. There's a, Look, Dances with Wolves is fine, but I'm not watching it once a year. Goodfellas, I'm watching at least once a year. It is a fantastic film. And so the, what the Academy did with The Departed was they just said, oh, fuck, this guy's getting old. We got to give him an Academy Award for Best Director. There's no way we're going to let Martin Scorsese work for 50 years, retire and die and not award him a Best Director and and so they didn't know Wolf of Wall Street was around the corner. They had no idea when they're giving him this Academy. I think it was 05. I don't know. It could have been 04. I don't know. But it was right around that area. When they gave him the Oscar for The Departed, they didn't know that in 2013 we were going to get Wolf of Wall Street. Because if they had, I think they would have saved the Oscar for Wolf of Wall Street. It was a much better film. So look, you can come at me and say he won the Oscar for The Departed, but I'm just going to tell you to turn around and fuck right back off because – Wolf of Wall Street is a better film. They gave him the Oscar for The Departed because they had to get it in. It was like an obligation Oscar. It was a OO, an obligation Oscar. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You're just wrong, okay? Wolf of Wall Street is an excellent movie. He really deserved the Academy Award for Wolf of Wall Street. It it is his best film since Goodfellas. He deserved it for Goodfellas too, though. So it's not an indication of quality, right? Because he didn't win for Goodfellas. Goodfellas did not win Best Picture. Goodfellas did not win um, Best Director at the Academy Awards. And that's not an indication of a poor quality of the film for either Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street, because Wolf of Wall Street didn't win those two awards either. It was nominated, but didn't win. What it is an indication of is that the Academy Awards is bullshit. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. They don't know what we're going to be watching over and over and over again in 10 years or 20 years. They don't know what's a classic. They don't know what's going to stick around and stand the test of time. They really don't. They didn't know it in 1990 with Goodfellas, and they didn't know it in 2013 with Wolf of Wall Street. So I'm off that soapbox. The Academy sucks. It's only good for watching dudes get slapped. It's literally, it's a better reality television program than it is an actual award ceremony for like real film art. So uh, fuck off. I just can't wait to see who gets slapped at the next year's uh, ceremony. Anyway, this film, Wolf of Wall Street, is exemplary of what Scorsese does best, which is make a three-hour movie about a highly interesting, highly charismatic sociopath. Scorsese has such a talent for these characters that are charming but duplicitous, the the kind that come at you with a smile, but they're holding a knife behind their back too, right? They're concealing this thing behind their back they're going to use to stab you. I mean, these two-faced characters that that are really terrible human beings, but so much fun to watch. And I think there is a documented popularity of that type of character. I mean, otherwise people wouldn't be watching Sopranos for the last 25 years. I mean, Sopranos is a tremendously popular show too. Not because Tony Soprano is a particularly good guy. He's actually a pretty big shit heel. If you watch that show, he's not the type of person you want to be around. He's not the kind of person you want in your life, but it's a popular show and it's an incredible performance. And so that's what I want to say about Wolf of Wall Street, particularly in a few minutes when I address criticism specifically by Eileen Jones in her article, Crocodile Tears of the Wolf. I'm going to rebut her very briefly towards the end of this podcast. But 
But what I want to say is that these people are meant to be despicable, and Scorsese has a talent for presenting these really charismatic, really despicable characters. You still wrongdoers, right? Who you nonetheless you can't get enough of, and there's there's a documented. Um, interest in that, I think, across the culture. It's the reason why gangster movies have been popular for nearly a hundred years, maybe a hundred years. It's the reason why people listen to true crime podcasts way more than they should. They should be listening to my shit, but they're listening to true crime stuff instead of this. It is, it's the reason why people like this shit. It's the reason why Goodfellas is a masterpiece. It's the reason why Wolf of Wall Street is a masterpiece. It's three hours long, but this the Wolf of Wall Street is still nimble and punchy all the way through. It's like, can I really watch Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill smoke crack and do quaaludes for three hours? For three hours. And the answer is yes, I can. I probably could watch it for four hours. I'm glad they didn't stretch the film out that long. But this film also includes some stylistic things that Scorsese does better than any other human being making films out there. And that is the use of voiceover in film. Oftentimes voiceover, maybe 90% of, of the time, a voiceover in film is completely unnecessary and maybe even quite possibly bad. Some of the worst dialogue in a film oftentimes comes over through the use of voiceover. I think that 90% of the time you don't want voiceover in film. You don't need it. You don't need to explain to people what's going on on screen, especially if you want your film to be considered art. You don't need to explain your art to me. Please just present it to me. Let me watch it. Let me interpret it and take from it what I will. And that's not something that Scorsese does, despite being a a true American film artist. He still gives us voiceover in many of his films. Wolf of Wall Street, he gives us a ton of voiceover as well as Goodfellas. But unlike most voiceover, this is one of those things like um, once you know the rules, you break them. Scorsese clearly knows the rules of filmmaking. He's been doing it for 60 plus years. He uses voiceover masterfully. And the the presence of voiceover in Wolf of Wall Street is not at all a detriment to the film. And in fact, it helps the film to run. I mean, it's like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio kind of holding our hand, escorting us through the film. If you consider some of the scenes where the camera follows Leonardo DiCaprio through the Stratton Oakmont offices, and there's no cutting. It just follows him through the throngs of people, his uh, adoring employees, almost like a cult, right? They, they almost seem like they're following this cult of Jordan Belfort, but the camera will follow Leonardo DiCaprio as Jordan Belfort as he moves through these spaces. And um, it's like he's escorting us through this world, literally in terms of what we're watching. He's escorting us through this office that we're getting a glimpse inside the inner workings of this uh, corporate criminal entity. But then his voiceover also helps to escort us through. It gives us a little bit of his ethics. And I'm going to play some lines from the film in this podcast episode that help to support my arguments. And I've taken most of those from the voiceover. So the voiceover is highly, highly useful and extraordinarily entertaining in this case. So again, most of the time voiceover, you don't want it. But in this case, I'm taking voiceover. This is great stuff. He also used voiceover masterfully in Goodfellas. And I'm going to mention Goodfellas a lot during this podcast episode. I'm going to apologize, but it's like when artists would paint uh, triptych. If you're familiar with uh, visual art, oil painting, et cetera, 
they were uh, triptych is is very uh, commonly used. I mean, they have other forms. They have four. They have two. But the triptych is three paintings that go together. Right? It's not like they're sequels to each other, but they're like spiritually connected in terms of the art. And this film is like spiritually connected artistically with Goodfellas, despite not being related in the narrative. There, there's no characters that overlap. Uh, but they're both made by the same filmmaker and they both have very similar themes and a very similar composition. These two films stand up next to each other extraordinarily well. If you like Goodfellas, you're going to like Wolf of Wall Street and vice versa. So I'm going to mention Goodfellas and the parallels between these two films a lot because I can't just talk about the ethics and philosophy. I have to talk about the filmmaking as well because that's what I got a film degree for. This film also, incredible performances. Another thing that makes this film so watchable, so incredibly watchable, is that there are so many incredible performances, both from principal actors like DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, uh, Margot Robbie. They're, they're incredible. But then even some of these like smaller kind of bit, like John Bernthal as the uh, kind of drug dealer dude, like tell your sister I was asking about her. Like that guy, like he's just so creepy. And in 2013, who the shit knew who John Bernthal was? It's incredible, but he's come into his own. I mean, he was doing Walking Dead back then, so I guess Walking Dead fans knew who he was. I don't watch Walking Dead. I'm not a Walking Dead fan, so I didn't know who he was. But regardless, even some of the small performances are so entertaining. They're so fun to watch. And that's not because every single actor is incredible. I think they're all very good, but it's also because Scorsese knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants. He knows what he needs. He directs these people to give these performances that are uh, so incredibly entertaining, even for like the smaller guys like uh, Rugrat or uh, Ming or whatever. They're they're really, really fun and entertaining performances, but it's hinged on DiCaprio. I mean, he's 100% believable. He's playing Jordan Belfort, a salesman, ultimately, who sells these shitty penny stocks. He sells all of these up-and-coming, would-be... Uh, Wall Street types on Stratton Oakmont gets them all involved in the con. He's selling 100% of the time as the character, but DiCaprio sells me on his performance. He 100% sells me as Jordan, as this narcissistic egomaniac who's simultaneously crippled by drugs and he's a complete slave to his hedonic desires. I'm going to talk more about that, but DiCaprio is amazing. He's fantastic in this role. And I, I believe him 100%. I believe him 100%. In, in, and it's incredibly watchable. The things he does with his face, his voice, and the smile. I mean, it's perfect casting because DiCaprio can just look at the camera and smile and, and look, you're charmed. You're, you're right there. You're in it for three hours. Jonah Hill, that was an excellent bit of casting as well because we're talking about the guy from Superbad who drew all the dicks. This is um, not the casting that I necessarily expected back in 2013 because Jonah Hill was known for uh, bro performances in bro movies like super bad drawing dicks and getting boners and and um, small bit appearances in 40 year old virgin and um, freaks and geeks. And, and so working in more of the like the comedy and almost kind of gross out kind of animal house style, National Lampoon style comedy didn't expect him to take a turn in this film. And he doesn't stray too far from his other broish performances. You could tell he's still got that kind of broish. I mean, he uses the word bro in this movie a ton. And it, so it doesn't feel too far from his other 
earlier performances, but I still, I love it. I love the prosthetic teeth. He's so much fun. He's so exuberant. You can tell he's like having fun. He's working with Scorsese. Why? I mean, why wouldn't that be a dream come true for the guy who was drawing dicks in Superbad? Now, a few years later, he is in a Martin Scorsese film, one of Martin Scorsese's best films. And he's just over the top. He's insane. Even the teeth, they're just over the top. He's fun to watch. He's like, hey, let's smoke crack with me, bro. Smoke crack with me. Who says no to that? I would not be able to save Jonah Hill came to me in character as Donnie and said, smoke crack with me, bro. I'm smoking crack with with Jonah Hill all day, every day. Margot Robbie, I remember she wasn't um, she really wasn't on the scene very much until this film. And then after the film, it's like it's not just about her physical appeal, because I really thought, you know, maybe this film she gets naked. It's maybe more about her physical appeal and being able to perform nude in these scenes to kind of get the younger audience, the male audience like, oh, yeah, I like that. But it really I mean, it's a Scorsese film, so you know he's not going to just rely on the TNA. TNE. Yeah, I said TNE. No, no, you said TNA. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You did. When yeah, did you I did. say you that? You said TNA. It's TNE. All right. I Don't mean, tell me what you said. I heard what you said. Dad, he I'm, said TNA. He, he did. Said, he said yeah, TNA. Absolutely no question. Yeah, I heard I'm, it. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm getting this close. Dad, I'm getting relax. this close. He's not going to just rely on the TNA to to bring in 14 and 15 year old audience. It really is about the performance, and he's not going to choose somebody who's subpar because they're sexy, right? He's going to choose somebody who can do the role as well, just like he's done with every other movie. And he's worked with attractive female actors before, but with Margot Robbie, of course, she's this morally gray character. I mean, she marries DiCaprio. I'm going to talk a little bit more about her character in a few minutes, but she's not this good pure-hearted foil to Jordan's character. I mean, she's along for the ride. She knows what she's getting into from the very first date. She seduces him, and she does it because he's rich. I'm going to talk more about that in a few minutes, but she's a little bit more nuanced, right? I mean, it's hard to say, is she acting in the best interests of her family, of her children by the end of the film, or is this just another pump and dump scheme? She's just got a different way of going about it. She doesn't work on Wall Street, but she's still pumping and dumping. She sure does pump Jordan Belfort and dump his ass. So there's a uh, there is a parallelism between the trophy wife and Jordan Belfort. So I got to say that I have no end of admiration for this film, and there may be a future time where. Uh, I do a little bit of um, more of like a film art. I talk about the semantics and semiotics of this film, some of the filmmaking stuff, uh, the editing, the montage, the mise-en-scene. I'm not going to talk too much about that today because I'm going to focus on the uh, relevant material for my philosophy course. But hopefully you guys enjoy this discussion of the philosophy of Wolf of Wall Street. So first things first, the characters, primarily Jordan himself, make a bunch of ethical mistakes. This film is a really great example of a lot of the ethics that you'll discuss in a philosophy class and in an intro philosophy class, things like um, Kant, Kantian philosophy, utilitarianism, libertarianism. Uh, you'll talk about capitalism a little bit. And, and so these characters make, and primarily Jordan, he's the character that we follow mostly. And the other characters really just kind of um, act in his thrall throughout the film. They're following his lead and they are behaving as he does. That's why I said his, the, 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 the team that he assembles in his workplace is almost like a cult. Like he selects people that are going to follow him. He selects people that are going to, um, not object to his ethical failings. So first things first, Jordan follows 
the hypothetical imperative to a fault. This is a Kantian idea that that, uh, originated with the writings of Immanuel Kant. And the idea is that in order to get something, we must do something else. So in order to eat, I got to go buy groceries. And in order to have uh, money to buy groceries, I must work a job or or maybe I'll rob a 7-Eleven at gunpoint and I'll steal some money and uh, a hot dog off the roller uh, and I'll steal a roller dog and then I'll, I'll eat and I'll have money. Um, that would be an ethical mistake. That would be a uh, uh, bad in, in Kantian philosophy because I'm, I'm treating that, that, that poor guy at the 7-Eleven as a means putting a gun in his face. But, but Jordan follows the hypothetical imperative to a fault. I mean, a hypothetical imperative could hypothetically uh, create good, right? I mean, it's good that I feed my family. Therefore, it's good that I spend money at the grocery store. Therefore, it's good that I uh, work a job and I have a career that provides an income, right? I got two daughters to feed. And therefore, uh, my hypothetical imperative of putting food on the table, of, of having to do things in order to put food on the table, produces good because we all get to eat and we all get to eat pretty healthy food. And, and so that helps with the growth and development of my daughters and such. But, but of course, a hypothetical imperative is um, a thing, right? It's not automatically good. It's not automatically bad. It's, it's like anything. It's a, how do you use it? What is, what is the hypothetical imperative that you're following? Of course, Jordan's hypothetical imperatives don't produce good. Even for Jordan, which is what we see in the long run, it's the point of the film that the hypothetical imperatives that he follows to, to produce wealth at all costs and by any means, I should say, encourages behaviors in Jordan that lead to his undoing. It's the, it's the ultimate purpose of this film, and ultimately it's why Eileen Jones is wrong in her opinion article Crocodile Tears of the Wolf. I'm going to put a link to that article in the show notes in case you guys want to uh, take her side. You shouldn't because she's wrong. But in case you do, I'll put a link to that article so you guys can read about uh, Miss Jones' opinion on things. But but she's wrong, and she's wrong because this is a rise and fall film, and the fall has to be quick, right? Uh, Jordan's, uh, all of his his ugly behaviors, and I'm going to enumerate those in a few moments, they're all bad things. He does all of these bad things to accumulate as much wealth as he possibly can beyond what's even needed to to get by. I mean, like he could get by on less and probably commit a lot less crime and still live a, a pretty decent life as far as socioeconomic standing goes, but that's not that's not what he's into. I mean, his hypothetical imperative is 100% hedonism. It's hedonically driven. He's hedonically driven. All he wants to do is bang the hookers, do the cocaine, do the quaaludes, bang more hookers, just do whatever he wants. And he's not really even thinking very long term as we see. Now, the other Kantian error in ethics that Jordan makes is that he treats people as means. I mentioned that a moment ago. We're not supposed to treat people as means. Jordan doesn't give a shit about his clients. He really doesn't. This film makes it abundantly clear that he is not acting in anyone's benefit except his own. He's not trying to help his clients at all. He's trying to keep them on the hook. He doesn't want them to buy back out. He doesn't want to give them their money back. He doesn't want them to cash out of this system. He just wants to keep them rolling. So that's a Kantian issue, treating people as means. You're not supposed to treat people as means. He does the pump and dump scheme with uh, the um, 
Oh, what's his name? Steve Madden. <laughs> Steve. Steve. What's that fucking guy's name? Steve Madden. His friend from school, Steve Madden. The ugly ass shoes. Jonah Hill says they're shoes for fat girls. It's a fat girl shoe. Or somebody says they're shoes for fat girls. And I completely agree. They're terrible. They're the, um. Steve Madden. Anyway. He does the pump and dump where he retains most of the shares. He gets his guys to sell a bunch, drives the value up, and then he dumps his and makes a lot of money. And that's treating these people who are buying into Steve Madden. Madden, That's his freaking name. So people who buy into the Steve Madden IPO, they're, of course, inflating the value of Jordan's holdings, which Jordan then sells at that inflated value dumping off that stock and sloughing off a lot of that value. He basically cashes out when the value is high and leaves everybody else holding the bag. So um, he's treating these people as means. He's not treating them as people. So he, he does the most good for the least to talk utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is another philosophy that is in some ways uh, in contrast to Kantianism, but, but can kind of go hand in hand. Of course, if we talk about doing, Uh, the most good for the greatest number. He's doing the most good for the least number. He will harm anybody in his way in order to benefit himself. Again, following that hypothetical imperative towards the, the uh, maximal amount of hedonism. He's just plundering his clients. It only benefits him. It benefits some of his cronies too, his cult, because these are the people that are kind of backing him up. He's got to share some of the spoils with them as well to keep them showing up at the office. But if he had to stab any of them in the back, and he does at the end of the film, he would stab him in the back. He he rats out on several of the people that he works with by the end of the film, and um, it's just something that he's willing to do to reduce his own sentence and uh, do the most good for the least number, which is just him, the number one, one person. So he creates a lot of pain and suffering for people. It's mostly off-screen pain and suffering. That is one of the pretty consistent critiques of this film is that the pain and suffering that he causes his clients is never seen. We don't ever see any of his clients on screen. We hear some of the voices of his clients through the telephone at times, but even that is pretty minimal. So this emphasizes the disconnect between him and his clients. He's not selling anything face-to-face. He doesn't have people coming into his business face-to-face. He's not dealing with people, right? Only his employees. The clients that he's fucking over, he doesn't have to ever look at them. And so he causes a lot of pain and suffering and it's not, we don't get to see it on screen, but it's still, it's a part of the narrative and he's a hypocrite. Uh, And the film shows us this. I mean, it's a three hour run for a reason and every scene is important. Now he's happy to steal from others at any opportunity. He's happy to sell these clients, these junk penny stocks and uh, promise the moon, but under deliver, he's happy to uh, pump and dump the the Madden IPO, he is happy to take money. But in a pivotal scene, his butler, his gay butler, has a has a party while he's gone. We see a little homophobia from Jordan too, because when his wife says that she saw them having gay sex on the couch that he's sitting on, she's like, Yeah, they were right there. And he goes, Ooh, and he stands up really fast. And it's 
kind of subtle and subconscious, but you get the idea that his attitudes, and I mean, maybe it's just like you'd prefer to wash the couch, right? I mean, you probably would. I, I would rather wash the couch, even hetero, homo, I don't care whose sex is going on on that couch. I, I, I would like us to please wash it or burn it and get a new one. But regardless, he's happy to steal from his clients, but his butler has this party while he's gone, right? And when he comes back, there's money missing from the sock drawer. It's $20,000, which is a large amount of money for most of us listening to this podcast, but it's not a large amount of money for Jordan Belfort, but he still feels slighted. He was stolen from, after all. His his buddies uh, hold the butler over the edge of his high-rise apartment. I mean, if they slipped and dropped him, he would have been dead easily. He's like on the 50th floor or something like that, the 100th floor. I mean, it was a high-rise apartment building, and they were willing to kill this guy over the thefts against him. So Jordan's a hypocrite here too. He doesn't mind stealing from other people, but how dare you take anything from him, even if it's a small amount of his net worth, even if it's tiny, it's the equivalent of somebody taking $5 out of my wallet. I mean, you get offended when someone steals from you, even if it's a small amount, even if it's a nominal, somebody going in there and helping themselves to your wealth. You know, it's it's offensive to anybody who's had money stolen from them. But but Jordan doesn't see the irony here of his own hypocrisy. He doesn't see that he's being a hypocrite about the money stolen from him. And that's a knock against him, right? I mean, if you're going to steal from other people, you got to at least suck it up when somebody steals from you. If you're not going to steal from other people, then you have a moral high ground. You can get upset when somebody steals from you. But he doesn't appreciate the irony here that he is the thief throughout this movie. And for once, he gets stolen from, and it pisses him off. Now, Belfort made a lot of his money effectively selling junk. The pink sheet stocks are like penny stocks. The idea is that you can buy in for a small amount of money and then maybe this company takes off and like, you know, you drop a thousand dollars on some stocks. It's not a ton of money in the long run. It's easy enough for a plumber to get a thousand dollars together to drop on some stocks. But then um, if it takes off and you're, you multiply your money by 10 or a hundred times, then, you know, you tack some zeros on there. And for somebody uh, who's working as a blue collar worker or something like that or teacher or something making $35,000 a year. I mean, if you could turn a thousand dollars into 10,000 or a hundred thousand, I mean, that means a lot to your average kind of middle-class individual, but Jordan's selling junk, the, the stocks he's selling, the pink sheets. Yeah, it's, it's not illegal, but it's definitely unethical. He's treating these people as means he knows he, they're not going to, they're not going to recoup on their investment. It's highly unlikely. And so is he wrong for being such a good salesperson? Or do we blame the victims for, like, they fell for it. They bought the junk. I mean, why would you fall into this get-rich-quick scheme? And Jordan says early in the film that these people want something for nothing. He's calling these people who want to get rich quick. They want to make a $500, or $1,000 investment and have it turn into $50,000 or $100,000. They want something for nothing. I think... Maybe there's a little bit of both. I think Jordan is wrong, but not because he's a good salesperson. I mean, Jordan does exhibit some real like masterful use of classic sales techniques. Like he always mentions the customer's name several times throughout the conversation, sort of custom tailors the conversation to that person by mentioning their name several times. That's a classic sales technique. Now, if he knows he's selling junk to people and he does, those people, you know, 
they don't think they're buying junk. They might sort of know that they're they're buying junk, but he's still duping them. I mean, he's over the phone. He's selling them on the idea that this investment is going to produce value for them when it's not. And so, again, he's using these people as means. So I do think that he's in the wrong for exploiting these people. It's not because he's a good salesperson, because a good salesperson could sell a good product. A good salesperson could sell anything, right, as evidenced here. And Jordan sells junk to people. He rips them off. But you could sell a good product. You could sell televisions. You could sell computers. You could sell medical equipment. You could go sell medical equipment to big hospitals. And you could make a shit ton of commissions. I know. I got a buddy who did that. uh, My first undergrad from University of Georgia. One of my roommates got a PhD in genetics. And uh, he went to work in a lab for a while. And I'm sure he was making... 50K, 55K, who knows? He went to work in a university lab, but then he left there and I'm sure he's making, I don't know, I'm sure he was making a quarter million dollars a year, maybe half a million dollars a year. He went to work selling medical equipment. You can sell large, humongous, expensive medical equipment, CT scanners, you can you can do MRIs, all sort of imaging equipment. You can sell this lab equipment to universities and uh, hospitals and make a ton of dough. Jordan could have easily sold legitimate products that would benefit people, not treat people as a means, and still make a very good living. He might not have been on the top floor of a Manhattan penthouse, and he might not have been married to the trophy wife, Naomi, the Duchess, but he could have lived a good life. But that wasn't enough for him. That wasn't enough because he's driven by hedonism. Living a good moral life, no, he wants to do cocaine off a hooker's asses, as we see in the film. He became rich not because he was a good salesman. It was because he was willing to exploit people and treat them as means and break those uh, Kantian ethics. And it's evidenced by one of his lines in the film. I mean, you get an idea of what he's thinking when he tells you this line. So I was selling them shit. Fuego. But the way I looked at it, their money was better off in my pocket. I knew how to spend it better. So he knows he's selling them shit. He just said it. And he thinks he knows how to spend it better. He thinks he deserves the money more than they do. That is how he told himself that it was okay to use these people as means. The common phrase, a fool and his money are soon parted. That, of course, is true, right? A fool and his money are soon parted. But if you want to be an ethical person, don't be the one to part them, right? Jordan didn't care about the ethics. He saw an opportunity, and he doesn't mind being the person to part the fool with his money. Now, the question of why are so many aspiring young Wall Street types, why do they admire Jordan Belfort? Why do people want to be like Jordan Belfort, both in the movie and possibly in real life? I mean, you you have within the narrative, uh, after the um, the magazine article is published on Jordan that dubs him the Wolf of Wall Street and, and compares him to Robin Hood, after that article is published, of course, every single day, there are a dozen different young would-be Wall Street types that appear outside of Stratton Oakmont trying to get a job, trying to get hired, trying to get in on some of that unethical wealth. Now, that's within the narrative of the film. It's also possible that real-life people watch Wolf of Wall Street and think, shit, I wouldn't mind doing that. I mean, Ponzi schemes are a thing in real life. uh, Fiscal fraud is a real thing that people have to deal with 
in real life. So there are these types both within the film and outside outside of the diegesis of the film. But the reason why, at least my opinion, in short, it's because he's rich. Jordan's rich. He spends most of the movie rich, and everyone kisses his ass. He gets away with all kinds of shit. He gets to do wild shit. I've mentioned snorting uh, cocaine off the hooker's ass, trashing Vegas hotels, uh, being a wild asshole on flights, and basically just getting away with acting like a complete shit heel. And I think most aspiring Wall Street types probably want to be rich and have their asses kissed and and be able to get away with things. It's sort of a, a modern day royal treatment, right? He gets away with all of the stuff because he's rich. And as he says later in the film, and I lived in a place where everything was for sale. You can get away with a lot of shit if you're rich. Additionally, Jordan capitalized on opportunity and he thumbed his nose at the authorities. There is a scene in the film where he decides not to step away from Stratton Oakmont. He had inked a deal with the SEC to step away from Stratton Oakmont. The SEC would uh, drop their civil suit against him, and it would also remove a lot of the evidence for the FBI in pursuing their criminal case against him. So it was a, a movement away from his Wolf of Wall Street life that was going to preserve him, his his wealth, and keep him out of jail. Instead... He says, fuck it, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not fucking leaving! The show goes on! This is my home! They're gonna need a fucking wrecking ball to take me out of here! They're gonna need to send in the National Guard a fucking SWAT team! He got a little bit drunk on his own power, and I'm going to talk about that in a few more minutes, but but because he thumbs his nose at authorities, a lot of people admire that quality. He's not going to let the SEC tell him what to do. He's not afraid of the FBI. This is the reason why I mentioned gangster films. I mentioned Goodfellas. I mentioned Sopranos. Even going back further, uh, Brian De Palma's Scarface is a, such a well-loved movie. It's a piece of shit. Let me just put that out there. I'm going to do a whole nother episode on, on why uh, De Palma's Scarface is a shitty film. But anyway, it's a bad movie, but people, idiots, mostly still love Scarface. And it, the reason why they put these characters, these gangster, the, the, the Scarface, you know, the Al Pacino characters, um, the, the Tony Soprano type of characters on a pedestal is because these are the type of people that do whatever the fuck they want. People admire those qualities. A lot of people don't want to be told what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I feel that way a lot. I'm a tremendous contrarian. Don't tell me what to do. Kiss my ass. What are you, my mom? No, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I mean, chances are if the FBI is investigating me, I'm going to step away. I'm going to go hide in a hole somewhere where they can't get me. I don't got the balls that Jordan does or 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 the ego or lack the brains that he does. But But even still, I feel that in my soul when people tell me what to do. I'm like, kiss my ass. Don't tell me what to do. So uh, I think... A lot of Wall Street types want to be like this guy. He's a trailblazer. He doesn't let anybody boss him around. He seems like a leader, like a boss. I think also, to some degree, these Wall Street types don't want to live in the real world. These people don't want a normal life. They don't want nine to five. They dread it. They dread middle class office work and $60,000 a year. So they don't consider ethics. They don't think 
deep thoughts about philosophy. They probably didn't pay any attention to that class in college. They don't think about utilitarianism. They don't think about Marxism. They don't think about Kantian ethics. They don't think about any of that. They just follow a pure libertarian ethos without even realizing that that's the ethos they follow. In this film, they just want to sell shit to people and get the commissions and F everybody else. And if you're dumb enough to buy some some shitty penny stocks from me, then sucks to be you. Now, does this film glamorize Belfort? I think that's not necessarily the question. Not to push back against my uh, professor, uh, Dr. Smith, who provided that, that question. But I, I think that part of the question is, does the film glamorize Belfort? And yeah, it does at times. But I think the other question is, and this is to address uh, uh, Miss Jones and her critique of Wolf of Wall Street. Is it a problem if the film glamorizes Belfort? Is it a problem for films in general to glamorize bad people, bad characters, characters that do bad things? Is it right for people to look up to Scarface? Is it right for people to admire Tony Soprano? Should people admire them? I mean, admiring James Gandolfini makes sense. It's a tremendous performance and he created an incredible character and 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 that was his art so you admire the artist but do you really want to look up to tony soprano guy who routinely cheats on his wife kills people even people close to him uh there may be some argument for why it's okay to glamorize these people in certain contexts so yes the film does at times glamorize belfort mostly in the first half of the film this is a rise and fall film much like goodfellas shows the rise and fall of these characters uh, you 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 have to make the rise look good, right? You have to make the first half of the film woo people. The first half has to bring people in. Go back and refer to my episode about Goodfellas uh, earlier in this RSS if you want to hear how I, I really break down how Martin Scorsese's actual filmmaking style changes from the first half to the second half of Goodfellas because he wants to bring you in. He wants you to fall in love with these characters. He wants you to be enamored by these sociopaths. But that's part of it, right? We got to be along for this three-hour ride. So Jordan's rich. He throws awesome parties. He's doing drugs constantly. He's got this penthouse suite in Manhattan. He's got a white Lamborghini, as we see at the very beginning of the film. He trashes airplanes. He trashes Vegas penthouse suites. And and they freaking cast Leonardo DiCaprio, for fuck's sake, as Belfort. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio has been synonymous since the mid-90s with like Hollywood, leading man, uh, a status, right? Leonardo DiCaprio's casting in this film is a status symbol in and of itself. And so, yeah, it makes Belfort look good when Leonardo DiCaprio is playing him. And they, they freaking cast Margot Robbie as his second wife. And as I mentioned previously, it's not like she's uh, tough on the eyes, right? So, they they made his wife look beautiful. They gave him mansions and 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 cars and possessions. All of these things that are really not important in life, but still nonetheless get people to pay attention, right? And so they glamorize him a little bit. He looks like he's having a great time, especially in the first half of the film. But then they make him look bad too. Again, this is especially clear in the latter, maybe. 20%, the, the, the final act of the film, it's very clear that he is not a good person. This is not somebody that you want to be. You don't want to be this person. He's an incorrigible drug addict. I'm a drug addict. I really am. I, I mean, cocaine, pills, whatever it is, I'll fucking do it. 
that's the truth. He said it better than I could. He's a drug addict. And, um, you know, it looks like fun in the beginning when they're doing quaaludes and sniffing ho- cocaine off of hookers and we're having fun in Vegas and stuff. But the the back half of that, the actual addiction when it grips you and you're outside in 50 degree weather and you're sweating bullets and you're uncomfortable and you're itchy and you're twitchy and you can't get through a plane flight without them strapping you down and you're out of control and you're ruining your life. You're crashing helicopters. You, you really, that's the, that's the back half of the drug addiction. Again, you don't want to be that guy the next morning, right? It's like a party, you know, you're having a great time. The music's going, there's tons of people over the keg is flowing. You're having a great time, but you're the one throwing the party. Everybody else leaves the next day you wake up and you're the one who's got to deal with all that shit. You got to put your couch back together. You got to clean up all of the mess, the spilled beer. You're the one who's got to deal with the carpet smelling like bush light. What I'm saying is that the back half of things, that's the messy part, the cleanup. That's not the fun part, right? So we see the fun part in the beginning of the film, but then we see the not fun part towards the end where the chickens have come home to roost, as his dad says earlier in the film. The chickens are going to come home to roost, Jordy. Now, another thing that is not glamorized about Jordan Belfort in this film is that his romantic relationships are extraordinarily dysfunctional. We see him with his first wife, and then we also see him uh, largely with his second wife, Naomi. The scene immediately after his wedding to Naomi She's waking him up by throwing water in his face and screaming at him, calling him a worthless piece of shit. I mean, talk about a short honeymoon face. We get this long scene where he's getting married and they're interviewing all the people at the wedding and everything looks so happy and he meets her Aunt Emma. And then we cut to him, married life some months later, and she is suspicious of him and he's obviously cheating on her. I mean, that's kind of what he does in this film and she's splashing water. I mean, it's just this terrible home environment. It's there, there's no peace, right? He can't even sleep in his own bed. She's waking up, splashing water in his face and calling him a piece of shit. They're yelling at each other. It's super dysfunctional. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. If you've ever been in a relationship where you just yell at each other, you don't want that. Moreover, Jordan Belfort is not a skilled lover. Anytime they show him doing any kind of sex with people in this film, it just doesn't look that much fun. Honestly, it looks like he's kind of getting what he wants out of the deal, but he's no Don Juan. It's obvious that women only flock to him in this movie because he has money. He would not get nearly as much sex if not for his incredible wealth and his access to drugs that that the wealth gives him. So, if he was just a, a normal nobody, middle-class guy working in an office making 60 k a year, none of that is possible. I think he might be happier for it. I don't think any of that, the sex, the drugs, any of that makes him happy. He's also an irresponsible parent. He strikes his wife in a pivotal scene, kind of climactic scene with his conflict with Naomi. He strikes her a couple of times. Even my wife loves this film. My wife loves Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street, and we watch them together at least once a year. But every single time, despite knowing the movie backwards and forwards, every single time uh, Jordan Belfort punches Naomi in the gut, knocks the wind out of her, my wife always, (gasps) she just, every single time she takes this breath, (gasps) she can't believe he hauls off and hits her, and she knows it's coming every single time. And, And if it gets that kind of response from my wife, you know, Well, A, you know I'm not hitting her. 
uh, which is true. But then you also know that this type of, of interaction with your spouse is terrible. I mean, it's nobody wants this. And, and as I mentioned earlier, he doesn't take the uh, SEC deal and exit Stratton Oakmont when he should have. The movie would have been over, right? It wouldn't have been as much fun. He just gets away with everything, and then the movie kind of quietly ends at the two-hour mark instead of going three hours and, and seeing the fall of this character. So it's important that he has this sort of um, blind spot. He's, he just thinks he's untouchable. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But he doesn't take the SEC deal. He, he's, he, he basically shoots himself in the foot in, in a very grand fashion. And so I don't think that the film, I think for all of the glamorizing that it does for Jordan Belfort, particularly in the beginning, I think by the end, especially when he's at that seminar after being released from prison and he's just joylessly making a little bit of money. Sure. But I think that by the end, he's a salesman hawking pens and doing what he can do to make as much money as he can, but it's not glamorous. It's not fulfilling. He's got all of these strikes against him and he's, he's not using his time. And I think it is because he lacks the ethics. I think he's not pursuing the things that are really going to make him feel fulfilled and happy in life. He's just filling it in with drugs and hookers, which a lot of people attempt to, you know. Now, does Jordan Belfort get an appropriate punishment? We have to consider the punishment that he receives. And that's another big point of this film. I mean, if you compare his punishment, for example, to somebody like um, a multiple offense a drug dealer for something like marijuana. I'm not talking about crack. Crack is whack. Crack will fuck you up. But I mean, like, let's say somebody got caught selling marijuana a couple of times, you know, in the Bible belt. And now they're doing 10 years, 20 years because they got caught selling marijuana a few times. I mean, how many, how many lives has marijuana ruined versus the people that get fucked over by Jordan Belfort, the clients that get scammed by Jordan Belfort in this film? I think it 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 goes without saying that that Jordan is not treated fairly, or that we could say that the the multiple uh, nonviolent felons uh, who are serving ten twenty years for nonviolent crimes to contrast with Jordan's also nonviolent crimes, they produce uh, the same amount of harm. I would say maybe less for the marijuana dealer, like I said, but but. It's not fair what Jordan gets. And uh, in real life, outside of the film, the real life Belfort was sentenced to four years in jail. Four years, right? His real life crime was uh, the pump and dump schemes. They caused investor losses of about $200 million. This is real life. This isn't the film. The real life Belfort caused investor losses of about $200 million. Transferred that money over to him and his buddies. But... $200 million investor losses versus nonviolent felon who sold some drugs. He, he was sentenced to four years. He only served 22 months. That's real life. He only served 22 months. The guy didn't even serve two years off of defrauding $200 million from investors. He was also ordered to pay $110 million in restitution, which he did not even come close to paying. And that got dropped as soon as his, um, as soon as his probation was done too. So he was ordered to pay up to $110 million in restitution during his probationary period. He did pay back quite a bit of money, particularly in like middle-class normal person terms. I mean, uh, I think per year he was paying somewhere between 100 and 
fifty and two hundred thousand dollars per year for several years. So you know, certainly more money than I made those years. He paid back, but he didn't come close to his hundred and ten million dollars in restitution. And so you know, he created these very real damages that we can examine on paper, and yet twenty two months, twenty two months. So his punishment pales in comparison to what other nonviolent offenders would get, especially these drug offenders, the drug dealers. Some some kids sells marijuana, right? Some 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid sells marijuana, gets busted a couple of times, has to do five years, eight years, 10 years, probation for another, five, six, seven, eight, paying fines and stuff like that. He didn't defraud somebody of $200 million. So he says it himself. I mean, Belfort says it himself. He's rich. He even gets to go to a rich person jail. We arrived to prison. I was absolutely terrified. Belfort, on your feet. But I needn't have been. See, for a brief fleeting moment, I'd forgotten I was rich. And I lived in a place where everything was for sale. The biggest punishment that Belfort seems to suffer in this film, it's just like the punishment that Henry Hill suffers in the end of Goodfellas, right? Because Henry Hill doesn't get whacked. Henry Hill doesn't do jail time. He enters witness protection. And he's got to live the rest of his life like a schnook. I mean... Both Henry Hill and Jordan Belfort certainly got off light for what they did. Jail time wasn't the real punishment for these characters. The punishment for these characters is to have to live a normal life afterward, like a schnook. They get the money and the power taken away from them. And that's all they wanted in the first place. I mean, if these guys got to stay rich and keep running their criminal schemes, they wouldn't even mind being in jail. It's the punishment of having all of their life's ambitions taken away from them. That's the punishment. His wings got clipped. It's like a little bit of his soul is gone by the end of the movie. He's asking these characters to sell him the pen, just as he did earlier in the film, but it's completely uninspired, right? When he asked his criminal buddies to sell him the pen, he got these various answers that were fun and kooky and and funny, but then he's asking these schlubs in New Zealand to sell him this pen and... It's all cookie cutter stuff. And the look on DiCaprio's face, I mean, this is why DiCaprio deserved the Academy Award because wordlessly DiCaprio expresses the the joyless nature of Belfort's life post-prison, that the real punishment is having to go do this for a living, to have to live the rest of his life like a schnook. At one point in the film, in Jordan's voiceover, he says this. I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. It makes you wonder to what extent does money create problems for Jordan rather than solve his problems. I mean, he talks about dealing with his problems by being rich and for sure that'll help with certain problems. But Biggie sang the classic song, Mo Money, Mo Problems. And I think for a lot of us that grew up in the 90s listening to Biggie, that rings true. Uh, so Jordan has this idea in the film that even by the end of the film, doesn't seem to be completely uh, broken of that idea, but he thinks that wealth equates to happiness. When he describes rich people, I mean, pay attention when you rewatch Wolf of Wall Street, pay attention to how Jordan describes rich people, the language he uses, the way he inflects his voice and the energy he gives. He talks about the things that they have. He talks about the guy pulling up next to you in a Porsche with a beautiful wife and she looks awesome and he's super happy. He's in a Porsche. He's got this material good. He's got this trophy wife. He's having an awesome life because he pulls up to you in this. Jordan's idea of normal middle-class life is similarly warped. He describes 
the guy next to him in a Pinto. He describes normal people riding the subway to go home to their ugly wives. So if you're rich, you have a Porsche, you have a beautiful wife. Did any of that shit make Jordan happy? I mean, Jordan had Lamborghinis. Jordan had helicopters. Jordan had a yacht. Jordan had a beautiful trophy wife who he argued with, splashed him with water. They shouted at each other. They fought, crashing his Lamborghini, crashing his helicopter, sinking his yacht, destroying all of these material goods. Did that make him happy? But he still looks at it like if you've got a Porsche and you've got a beautiful wife and you've got a $40,000 gold watch, then you're going to be happy. You're happy. And if you ride the subway, then undoubtedly you're going home to a fat, ugly wife and a moo-moo with a blah, blah, blah. And he paints this picture. And this is part of his cult leadership, right? And he has to ingrain within his employees that money is what makes you happy. But he believes it himself. I don't think he's selling something to them that he doesn't also believe for himself. He thinks that if he has the $40,000 watch, he's more happy than he would be without the $40,000 watch. He thinks that with the Lamborghini and the beautiful trophy wife, that he is more happy than he would be riding the subway going home to, I don't know, not a trophy wife. She could still be beautiful, right? I mean, plenty of middle-class guys are married to beautiful wives. If you've ever seen a sitcom before, um, King of Queens or something like that, there's plenty of fat plumbers that are married to beautiful wives, okay? Uh, I believe it. But the idea is that he, the, Scorsese really gives an idea, really great look into his psychology with this. And it's it's really a pretty wonderful portrayal of the inside of his mind. He, he believes it himself. It's a tale he uses to subordinate his uh, employees and keep them on this greed is good Wall Street train and convince them that they need these material possessions. But But the money creates problems. I mean, it doesn't solve his problems. Because he argues with his trophy wife. What's the what's the good of having a trophy wife if she's going to splash water on you and accuse you of cheating and stuff? I mean, he is. He deserved, Jordan deserved it. But the film makes it abundantly clear that money did not solve Jordan's problems, despite what he tries to sell us as the viewer and his employees. It elevated his standard of living, but he found all new problems. Mo money, mo problems. Biggie was... Uh, Biggie was a philosopher and a saint, and Biggie knew exactly what money was going to bring. It, 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 he found new problems like drugs, right? I mean, sure, poor people do drugs too, but he's able to do this whole new echelon of drugs. He's doing like designer drugs from the 70s that someone found in a vault. I mean, he's doing rich people drugs, cocaine, and he's able to go all the way up to 11 with it. I mean, he could do drugs day and night. And at the beginning of the film, he describes the litany of drugs that he takes. He cheats on his spouse. He gets STDs. That he's enabled to to do by the money. I mean, he, they're paying for hookers every Friday or whatever. They're going to Vegas. He's doing anything that'll hold still long enough. And of course, that creates problems for him in his home life because she knows he's cheating. She knows what he's about. She started dating with him when he was still married to his first wife. He breaks financial laws. That's a, a money problem. You're not going to break financial laws and hide your money from the U.S. government if you're making $28,000 a year. You're going to try to hide your money offshore when you're making tens or hundreds of millions a year because you don't want to pay taxes on all of that. Or you got to launder it because you don't want to explain to Uncle Sam how you got your hands on all that money. So he's hiding his money to prevent losing it to the U.S. government, and that created his biggest problem. He had to enlist his wife's aunt 
to hold accounts in Switzerland under her name. That's a problem because you got to go through these other people that technically own your money on paper. But then she dies and his money is stuck in Switzerland. He's got to book it from Italy to Switzerland. He's got to go through Monaco. He can't fly. He's got to take the yacht. That's how he sinks the yacht. He can't retrieve his money. So this money creates more problems. And I, I hesitate to blame money entirely. It's not like Jordan was a saint. I mean, if this movie was made in the 30s or the 40s, they would have depicted him as this kind of Citizen Kane style. Oh, he was this good boy and he was happy with his rosebud. But as he rose to prominence and success, this money had this corrupting influence. And I don't think, I think Scorsese takes a more nuanced uh, look than Orson Welles did with Citizen Kane. I mean, I think Jordan is still at fault. I mean, there's still something in him. He's an asshole. He's still an asshole. But money made it possible for this guy to be an asshole on steroids. Like, he went from being an asshole. I mean, he might have cheated on his wife regardless, even if he was making $60,000 a year. But he goes from being an asshole who could cheat on his wife to being like a $100 million asshole who can cheat on his wife every single night of the week sometimes multiple times a day, all while doing drugs, money made it possible. It enabled him to do the bad thing. So it's just like gun violence, right? Like you have to have the will to do something, but you also have to have the means. Now, Jordan had the will to do bad things, but then the money gave him the means to really dial it up to 11. There's the the whole, um, that whole tax haven thing. And that really goes against Eileen Jones's uh, narrative too with her crocodile tears of the wolf. I think she's completely wrong because the movie makes it obvious that this money causes problems. And there's an impact of money on Jordan's second wife, Naomi, as well. She's this, she's this pampered, uh, she lives this la- lavish lifestyle, but she's a trophy wife, right? She could have any opportunity that she wants, especially with all of Jordan's wealth as a resource, but she's kind of stifled by it a little bit too. I mean, the money sort of pushes her in the direction of of apathy, of not really wanting to better herself. Uh, she can just go buy whatever she wants, right? So it's it's obvious that her access to Jordan's riches don't make her happy either. She's almost more of a babysitter to Jordan at times when he's like whacked out on quaaludes. She's got to like keep him alive practically, wipe his ass. I mean, so and she leaves Jordan as soon as the money runs out. And that's the most telling part of her character arc. She puts up with his bullshit for years. She has every reason to leave him. She knows he's cheating. He's doing drugs constantly. He's a shitty father. He's a shitty husband. Absentee to say the least. But she doesn't choose to go until the money dries up. He starts talking about mortgaging the house, and she's out. And Jordan himself at that point notes that it's awfully convenient for her to leave him when the chips are down. And her only response is, You married me. As if to say, you knew what you were getting. He spent his whole career to that point conning people. And he justified it to himself following these pure libertarian ethics. He thinks that, you know, if you're dumb enough to get conned, then sucks to be you, nerd. It's financial Darwinism, enrichment of the fittest. Jordan didn't feel like he was in the wrong for taking from these people. But she's just like that with him. She feels no pity leaving him at his lowest point. She conned him. He was dumb enough to let her con him. Jordan bought into the scam. Naomi knew what she was. She knew what she was selling him. She's a trophy wife. She's in it for the lifestyle. And as soon as Jordan couldn't support that lifestyle, she was going to take hers and bounce. So I don't think the money made her happy either. It just set her on this path. So ultimately, Jordan's money leads to his undoing. And the end of the film makes it clear. 
he'd been shielded from consequences of his poor decisions. If he gets an STD, he can go see a doctor and get things cleared up. Uh, if he trashes his car, it's okay. He can buy a new one. If he trashes his helicopter, it's okay. He can buy a new one. If he trashes his yacht, it's okay. He can buy a new one. He can pay off the cops. He can do what he, whatever he wants to do. He lived that way for so long that he began to think that he was untouchable. His money gave him a false confidence that he could buy his way out of anything. So being rich helped him solve problems of resources, not having enough money. Well, now you've got enough money. You can eat well. You can have health care. You can take care of your family. But he went beyond that, and he made new problems for himself by convincing himself that he was invincible. And that's why he didn't step away from Stratton Oakmont when he should have. That's why he ultimately went to jail, why he got busted by the FBI. Now I'd like to evaluate this statement. This is Ellis Island, you people. I don't care who you are, where you're from, whether your relatives came over on a a fucking Mayflower or an inner tube from Haiti. This right here is the land of opportunity. Stratton Oakmont is America. So Jordan wants to view Stratton Oakmont as a reflection of certain values and ideals that are often associated with life in America, the American dream. America is the land of opportunity. America is a place where people can achieve great wealth, even starting from nothing. That's why he mentions Ellis Island. He mentions Ellis Island to evoke the idea of people coming to America in the early 20th century with nothing, the clothes on their back, and then building themselves up, creating great wealth, that America was a land where you didn't have to be born into nobility. You know, even though he kind of fetishizes calling his wife the Duchess, you know, he likes to take on that air of nobility. But on the other hand, he also wants to think of himself as self-made. And so Jordan highlights to uh, the employees, and, and he highlights to his, his cult that people came to Stratton Oakmont with nothing, right? He tells the story about um, his, his employee, Kimmy, who came to Stratton Oakmont with nothing. She needed to borrow $5,000. He lent her $25,000, and now look at her. She wears Armani, and she travels the world, and she's so glamorous and blah, blah, blah. But he's doing that to make himself look good. He's doing that to make Stratton Oakmont look good. He's doing that to help to bring people in. That's part of the cult, right? He wants to make it look good. He wants everybody to want to be there. He's exploiting that thing that I talked about a few minutes ago with the Wall Street types, the aspiring Wall Street types. They want to be rich. They want to get their ass kissed. He's letting them know that Stratton Oakmont, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't have anything. Come to us. We'll make you rich. We'll help you make yourself. So he's not associating Stratton Oakmont with undesirable parts of America, right? He doesn't mention slavery or human rights abuses or, or 20th century imperialism. He doesn't mention any of those things. He just talks about how you could come to America with nothing. And if you work hard and you, you put yourself in the right place at the right time, a little bit of luck, boom, you too can become the new nobility. But it's all optics, Stratton Oakmont is not providing value to clients. They're just scamming people out of their savings. They're selling the pink sheets. It's not even the blue chip stocks. They're selling junk, right, to the lowest common denominator. And then when they get the opportunity, they just pump and dump mid-level IPOs like Madden. So if Stratton Oakmont is meant to be a metaphor for America, then possibly Scorsese with Wolf of Wall Street is acknowledging that the history of America is a little bullshit too. Like we as Americans, we've like sold 
our culture. Like we've sold America as this land of opportunity, right? Like, look at us. We're doing all this great stuff. We beat communism and, you know, we give uh, the world pop music and Tom Cruise and all of these great things. And look at all of our cultural exports and everybody watches our movies and everybody loves our music and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, that's great. But, uh, yeah, that like the Native Americans, a trail of tears. Like, ah, let's just save that for history class in sixth grade, right? Like, ah, we don't really know. A transatlantic slave. Yeah, we don't need to talk about all that stuff. Let's just talk about how awesome it is to be in America. You can do whatever you want. You come over here, you get rich as fuck. You do whatever you want. Hey, we got beautiful trophy wives over here. You know what you want? You want to marry a blonde lady. Come on over here. Marry a blonde lady. Beautiful trophy wife. Uh, so I think maybe the grander metaphor of Wolf of Wall Street and by comparing it to America is to say that it's optics. It depends on on how you want to look at America, right? If you want to take a really uh, rosy-eyed view of America, you might look at us as like, we're the best. You know, shit, we won the world wars. I mean, we're, we, made Amer- we made the world safe from the Nazis, right? I mean, if things had, if not for America, who knows? Like, we, we, you might have a, a painting of Hitler hanging out, out in, your, uh, in your house right now, and you might have the, uh, the swastika armband and all, on and stuff. Like, we, we're looking at it like, um, hey, America did all these great things. And, and it's true. America has been around long enough to do some great things and, and to do some bad things, too. But and and that's a metaphor for Jordan. I mean, he certainly did help out uh, Kimmy, his employee. I mean, he she needed five thousand. He wrote a check for twenty five. I mean, why did he help her out? Did he know that she was going to be this great salesperson, or did he take a chance on her? I, it, it the the film doesn't explain those times that Jordan really did help, but she was a single mom. She needed help. She was behind on her bills and he allowed her to become successful. And it's too bad. She had to do that by, by uh, grift and by scam, but um, he did give her that opportunity and he likes to point to that. And so that is, that's, I think what he means by Stratton Oakmont is America. He, he means, look at me and look at the wonderful things I've done. Don't pay any attention to the bad stuff. Don't the, like the cheating. Yeah, it's ugly. And I get splashed by my wife uh, to wake me up every morning and we argue and fight and blah, blah, blah. But don't pay any attention to that because I'm living this great life with the gold watches. One reporter in the film refers to Belfort as kind of a twisted Robin Hood who takes from the rich and gives to himself. But does Belfort think he's doing anything wrong? Does Does Jordan believe that he's doing something wrong? Does he understand? How does he justify his wrongdoings? And uh, how do people justify their own pursuit of money and material goods? I played the line for you where early in the film, Jordan mentions that the money is better off in his pocket. So he knows he's doing wrong. He knows he's scamming people. He knew he was selling them junk, but he doesn't really think much about their suffering as long as he's doing good. And I've mentioned that earlier. He knows what he's doing isn't legal, because FBI is investigating him, but he's actually a little bit offended by the FBI investigating him. He says this to uh, Agent Denham at one point in the film. You go after real criminals, which makes me wonder what what the hell you're investigating me for. I mean, honestly. He knows why he's being investigated. He doesn't, he knows, he knows. He He's aware of the crimes. He tells us in voiceover about his various crimes. Is this legal? Hell no, it's not legal, but we're doing it anyway. He's still offended that the FBI is going after him. That's part of his optics thing. He has to say, well, you go after real criminals. Like, I'm not stabbing people. I'm not murdering people. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a serial killer. Whatever. He's a white-collar criminal. He thinks that, why would the FBI be coming after me? You got bigger fish to fry. Go catch the murderers. Go catch the rapists. But they're still coming after him. They still got a fraud department. 
He doesn't give a shit. His only priority is hedonism, as I've mentioned a few times before, and he doesn't even think about the people that he hurts along the way. He's got this ability to put them out of his mind, just like the film doesn't show us the people that he hurts. And I think that's a conscious effort too, right? Because if you show us all of the people that he hurt by scamming and defrauding, and you see how their businesses were affected, how their lives were affected, you see them filing for bankruptcy, and you see all of the misery that he causes, cutting back to Leonardo DiCaprio living his life um, blissfully ignorant of that is too much of a juxtaposition for the film to work. The film has to take us through, escort us, as I mentioned earlier, through Jordan Belfort's life, and it has to show us how he's able to justify and then live with himself. It's because he's insulated from the effects that he causes. He's not a blue-collar criminal. He's not stabbing somebody. He's not looking at somebody in the eye when he commits a crime, when he hurts them physically, beats them over his head. So after enough time goes by, he convinces himself that he's not even the real criminals. He's not the priority for the FBI. Agent Denham disagrees. And I think with Jordan, after a little while, I mentioned he he thinks of himself as kind of untouchable, invincible. I think there is a superiority complex that he develops. He thinks that he's better than the people that don't share his greed. He's above them. Like he doesn't just spend the money better. He's, he's better. Like he's, and that's why he's rich, right? It's like almost like God touched him. Like he gets to be better because, because he's rich and that's evidence that he's better than them. He wouldn't be rich if he wasn't better than them, right? There's this line. Let me tell you something. There is no nobility in poverty. So he's telling you it's not better to be poor. He'll say, I've been rich and I've been poor and I choose rich every time because he can face his problems with a gold watch and a $2,000 suit. He thinks he's better. He, he, there's no nobility in poverty. There's nobility in being rich. In fact, that's where the word nobility comes from, right? I mean, the, the idea of nobility was we were the rich landowners hundreds of years ago during the feudal system. He also uh, expresses a little bit of... Um, superiority he looks down his nose at other people with this line now if anyone here thinks i'm superficial or materialistic go get a job at fucking mcdonald's because that's where you fucking belong so there's an example i mean you belong at mcdonald's you should be flipping burgers you should be frying french fries if you think that i'm materialistic so there's no gray area for him there's no nuance there's no subtlety right? You're either part of the $2,000 suit and $40,000 gold watch club snorting cocaine off a hooker's ass, or you're a peasant and you should be serving him at McDonald's. You should be assembling a Big Mac. Uh, You should be uh, deep frying French fries. You should go home every night smelling like a fry cook. There's no middle ground. I mean, there's like, there's no nobility in being a teacher and making $40,000 a year, right? I mean, that's probably better in most people's eyes than uh, frying fries and going home smelling French fries. Like you could teach young people and you could make a difference in some somebody's life, right? He doesn't look at it that way. He is better because he's rich and he's rich because he's better. He's rich because he's better. It's it, He's got the cause and effect relationship of his wealth completely backwards, Right. He doesn't think that he's rich because he's willing to scam people. He thinks that he's better than them, and he became rich because he's better than them. He deserves it. He's going to spend that money better. The money wants to be with him more. 
because money doesn't want to be spent on cat food and a Toyota Prius and a mortgage on a $150,000 house. Money wants to be spent on hookers and blow. Money wants to be $100 bills want to be rolled up so that you can snort cocaine with them. That's what money wants. And money wants to be in Jordan's pocket because he's going to go have fun with his fun coupons. Now, at one point, Jordan also says that money doesn't just buy you a better life, better food, better cars, better pussy. It also makes you a better person. In this case, he's wrong. I mean, he's wrong about himself. I think there's a lot of rich philanthropists out there that use their money for good. They set up foundations. They take care of people. They invest in technologies, medical technologies that really help people's lives. They donate to St. Jude's and children's hospitals and stuff. There's plenty of people that do good with money. So in in cases like that, maybe the money does make them a better person because it does give them the means, as I mentioned earlier, to do good things. But certainly in the context of this film, no, it doesn't. He's wrong. Because he mentions the things that you could do. He mentions that you could donate money to your favorite cause, your favorite political campaign. He even says you could save this spotted owl if you wanted to. But he doesn't do any of that shit. He doesn't do any of that with his money. That's a lie he told himself. That's that's part of his justification for conning people out of their money. The, the, he can spend it better, but also it'll make him a better person. But that's bullshit because he at no point in the film does he spend money at a children's hospital donating? He doesn't create a super PAC. He doesn't donate to political candidates. He doesn't try to improve the local living conditions in his community, Queens, where he grew up. He doesn't give a shit about any of that. It's all about him. It's a compelling piece of voiceover, but I don't think it's true in Jordan's case. And it's evidenced by Jordan being a tremendous piece of shit for a three-hour runtime. He cheats on both his wives. He drives while intoxicated. He strikes his second wife. He attempts to kidnap his child. He screws over every client that'll answer the phone to talk to him. And so he's just a, he's a bad person and money did that. I mean, money didn't make him better. Money didn't prevent him from, uh, from domestic abuse. Money didn't prevent him from driving while intoxicated. It didn't stop him from cheating. It might've enabled a lot of those things. So Money doesn't make him a better person. It, it bought him a better life. It elevated his quality of living, but he's completely wrong to say that it would make him a better person because it doesn't make you a better person. If you're a good person, then chances are you'll use your wealth to do good things. But if you're not a good person, then you're just going to spend your money on dumb shit, on helicopters that you crash and yachts that you sink and hookers and blow and, and STD treatments. And that's what, it, that's what happens in this film. Now, that doesn't mean that this is a bad film. As I said at the outset, this is an incredible film. And Eileen Jones wrote an opinion article entitled Crocodile Tears of the Wolf. And in it, she criticizes Wolf of Wall Street. And her primary criticism is that Wolf of Wall Street depicts greedy Wall Street types. She calls them rat fucks at one point, which you know, probably fine for my, one of my podcasts, but like, I was kind of surprised that they put that into print on the website because, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of shows a bias that, um, you know, she probably lived through that whole, um, Occupy Wall Street movement. And she undoubtedly shows some disdain for the 1%, the economic elite. She, she might be a little socialist. I mean, how I am too. Right. Uh, but, but the idea is that, there are bad people out there. There are bad people on Wall Street. And 
there are inequities. Uh, it, it is uh, completely fucked the way money flows up to the 1%. I mean, when you really study how how wealth is distributed away from the lower SES and how much is truly owned by the upper 1%, it's it's insane. It's it's crazy that there hasn't been a revolution yet. I mean, it's crazy these people haven't been drugged out of their house yet and and had their shit stolen and their their stuff completely looted. And I think that's in the future. If they if the gap continues to grow, eventually all the people in the lower SES and the former middle class people that are getting pushed down are going to look at each other and say, "Well, there's about a hundred million of us and about uh, I don't know a hundred thousand of them. I think we can take them, even with their security." And, and so. I think she's conflating her personal disdain for the uh, ill effects of, of unfettered capitalism, greed is good, and this film, because this film portrays them. And so I, I think she's wrong in her criticism. This is an excellent film. And it doesn't the fact that I love this movie doesn't mean that I love Wall Street types or that that I I I want to justify Jordan's behavior, because I think if you've listened to this podcast up to this point and paid attention, you understand that that his behavior is absolutely wrong, and I consider his behavior wrong. But Wolf of Wall Street is important because it depicts the corrupting influence of money. It depicts the rise and fall. And you're supposed to see these people rise. You're supposed to be you're supposed to at least understand why the people would choose this life. Why does Jordan choose this life? The first half of the movie is all of the things that he does with his money, the fun, the glamour, the ritz, the dinners, the drugs, the hookers, everything, the women, the cars, all of that. You have to depict the rise in that way because it has to be understandable why people would be seduced by this lifestyle. And then the back half is the hangover. Like I mentioned, it's the morning after. It's the negative impact of all of these vices over time. And the film does a good job depicting that. I don't think the film needs to spend time showing Jordan's tumors developing in his soul and 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 the devil wringing his hands, can't wait to get his hands on, on Jordan's soul when he dies and goes to hell. I don't think we need two hours of seeing all of his victims closing up their businesses because they were defrauded by Jordan. I, I think what we get is the foolishness, the error of his ways. And we see that at the end. And and some of that's undercut a little bit by the rich people jail and the 22-month sentence. But again, his punishment is that the life is taken away, right? You can't live high on that hog forever. And Jordan learns that. And Jordan ignores well-intentioned good advice from his father, Mad Max, and his securities attorney played by uh, John Favreau. I mean, he ignores good advice because he's an idiot and he thinks he's invincible. But I mean, the reason why, the real reason why Eileen Jones is wrong in her opinion is that the reviewer for friggin' Christianity Today gave Wolf of Wall Street 3.5 stars out of four. If the, if the film reviewer for a publication called Christianity Today can go watch Wolf of Wall Street with all of its drugs and all of its sex and all of its nudity and all of its immorality, cheating, stealing, thieving, everything, and walk away from that movie and give it a 3.5 stars out of four, you know that's a damn good movie. I rest my case. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. I appreciate you guys very, very much. Please. Uh, listen to my other episodes. Uh, please head over to patreon.com slash team Almy 
feel free to become a patron so you can get access to shit happens when you party naked that is my uh podcast that is just too raw for me to keep any type of other real job so uh please go over become a patron there's a ton of bonus content over there and new episodes that are exclusive to patreon shit happens when you party naked so patreon.com slash team almy for all my patrons i love you guys i love you i want to kiss you in the mouth i hope you guys get forty thousand dollar gold watches and two thousand dollar suits and don't catch the clap when you're in las vegas because you subscribe to my patreon patreon.com slash team alme i love you guys thank you guys for listening i'll see you when i see you next time i'm going to talk about how shitty scarface is i'm so sorry Cass. i love you Cass. uh scarface is a shit movie i love you Cass. see you guys when i talk shit about scarface <laughs>